Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. In our last show, we celebrated Juneteenth with our friends in Houston. And now I want to share with you another part of the history of Black emancipation that can be well understood by focusing in on Texas. The Texas Newsroom, which is a consortium of public media in the state, has launched a new podcast called Sugarland. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution ended slavery in the United States, of course, but with the notable exception of forced labor for people who are incarcerated. And Sugarland tells a striking story about that history and how it has come forward today. I'm going to share episode one with you in a moment, and you'll learn more of the history there. But first, I want to introduce you to the co-host and executive producer of Sugarland, Brittany Martin. Hey, Hi. Brittany. Thank you for having me. Okay, so maybe the first thing you can do here to get us all queued up for this to hear episode one is just introduce the place Sugarland for a second. Um, where what is this place? Sure. So Sugarland is its own city. It's outside of Houston, I think about twenty minutes west of Houston. And it has this reputation as one of the first places that white people settled in Texas. So the father of Texas, Stephen F. Austin, he picked the Sugarland area as the place where he would presumably set up mm-hmm. his homestead. He never really got around to that. Um, but that's where the first white settlers in Texas were. And so Sugarland really prides itself on its first colony um, roots. And of course, as being the home of Imperial Sugar, which is a massive national sugar brand. And that's where it's based, Sugarland. Yeah. And the the Imperial Sugar is going to be an important part of the story we're going to hear mm-hmm. uh, in this podcast uh, because the labor associated with this came from something called convict leasing, right? Mm-hmm. Introduce convict leasing to people who have not heard of this phrase. Well, they wouldn't be alone. I had not heard of convict leasing until... Um, This cemetery, which we discussed in the podcast, was discovered in 2018, Um, even having grown up in Texas, had never heard of it. So convict leasing was a system uh, adopted across the South in the decades following the Civil War, where a lot of people, not just black men, but a lot of black men, were arrested for any number of quote unquote crimes ranging from, you know, stealing a horse or a pig, presumably stealing a horse or a pig, may not necessarily have done so. Uh, They were arrested. They were sent to Huntsville, where the prison is. And then they were leased out for their labor to private railroads, sugar farmers, cotton farmers, uh, and made to do the same work that slaves did just a few years before. So 
like you said, this was, you hadn't heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you come to this story? What made you notice the story we're about to hear? In 2018, around July of 2018, news reports started coming out of Houston saying that a cemetery had been discovered on land where Fort Bend Independent School District was building a new school. And they just kept finding body after body after body. Eventually, they found 95 remains. And they started finding them in February of 2018. And in July, they announced that these people were likely convicts who were part of the convict lease system. And it was then that I thought, what's convict leasing? And why is this significant? And I had never heard of it and was so surprised that I had never heard of it because it's a massive part of making Texas what it is today. And you went to school. You were educated. (laughs) I was, yeah. (laughs) In Texas, no less. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wonder about you and your co-host sort of suggest this in the episode we're about to hear, um, just about the racialized nature of of you not having heard of it um, as a white person in Texas. Um, Yeah. Talk to me about that. Um, what what did what did your race have to do with you not having heard about it? Do you think? Yeah. So I mean, at first I was just kind of, I felt some sort of shame maybe in mm. having not heard of it before, and I thought it was because I was white and because I grew up in a predominantly white part of Houston, Northeast Houston, and then we started reporting this story, um, and I heard it from all kinds of people. I heard it from black people. I heard it from Hispanic people. I heard it from scholars and, you know, all kinds of people that really spanned all these demographics. And it started to sink in that like, no one was taught this. Um, My co-host Naomi, she said the same thing. She had never really heard of it until much later in her life. And we both went to Texas public schools. We were educated in Texas and it's just sort of left out. And I, I guess, how did you feel about that? <laughs> you know, um, I mean, was that um, a provocation? Was that an indictment? Was that, um, what What was your reaction to your ignorance, I guess, right? Yes, um, all of the above. Um, it felt like, okay, well, now we absolutely have to give this story its due. You know, it wasn't enough to just say, this cemetery was found and isn't that crazy that convict leasing existed. Um, The more you look into it, the more you realize that basically all of Texas's major decisions are based on racism and anti-blackness. And once you start to see that, you can't unsee it. And Mm -hmm. it really colors how you see everything about this state and our history. And for that to not have been (laughs) like communicated to me, I feel like I was just having these aha moments over and over and over again. And of course, that made me want to tell everyone else that I knew. So, yes, um, I'm hoping that, you know, making this information more public and telling everyone we know will maybe make a change and change the way that people understand our history and the way that it's presented to students and, you know, everybody else. Well, we're going to listen to the first episode of Sugarland. And then, dear listener, at the end of that, we're going to come back and have a couple more questions for Brittany uh, to talk about what's going to come up next. So here is episode one of Sugarland. 
It's a warm spring afternoon, and we're walking through a patch of dry grass in Sugarland, Texas, a city about 20 miles outside of Houston. Two nearby highways fill the air with a constant hum, occasionally broken up by the sound of a plane landing at the tiny airport just behind us. We're approaching a brand new school building, the James Reese Career and Technical Center. It's very modern, light brick, sharp angles, and floor-to-ceiling windows that students stream past on their way to auto shop and culinary classes. But that's not why we're here. See, in 2018, a few months into building this school, a backhoe operator was filling in a trench when he spotted a bone. Now to a developing story out of Sugarland, where a construction site has turned into an excavation site. Crews working on a Fort Bend ISD building discovered an historic cemetery on those grounds. So far, the remains of more than 30 people have been found. Day after day, more bodies were unearthed. Each grave was draped with a plastic tarp, and soon the whole field was covered. I know what you're thinking, and no, this is not a true crime podcast at least not in the way you'd expect. This wasn't a serial killer's dumping ground or anything like that. But it was evidence of a particularly dark period in our country's history. Evidence I bet many in Sugarland wished had stayed hidden. By the end of that summer in 2018, a total of 95 bodies had been found. And immediately, everyone started asking the same question, one that remains unanswered all these years later. Who was buried here? Two years ago, we set out to tell the story of these 95 people. Who were they? What happened to them? But it turns out that their story is just as much about them as it is about the people who've been trying to control them for over a century. These remains do not belong to anyone other than their descendants. They do not belong to you. You don't own them. You have no rights to them. Ultimately, this is a story about power. There just comes a point where, as a leader, you've got to say, this is what we're doing and this is why. Who gets it and how they wield it. By identifying descendants, now you're bringing more people to the table that may not agree with you. So let's really not find those folks. I'm Brittany Martin, an independent journalist based in Houston. And I'm Naomi Reed, an assistant professor of anthropology at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. And this is Sugarland, an investigative podcast series about the 95 souls laid to rest here and the systems that buried them, presented by the Texas Newsroom. Corbin ISD officials say it's still too early to know just who is buried here. But the Sugarland man says he believes he knows. And he says it's something he's been working to get acknowledged for nearly 20 years. That man was Reginald Moore. The system said you were free unless convicted of a crime. And so that's how they was able to get slavery back. Moore, who everyone affectionately calls Reggie, was impossible to miss. He was six foot two with a booming voice and the cadence of a preacher. When we started working on this series, his name was the one we heard over and over again. Mr. Reginald Moore. Mr. Moore. Reggie. Mr. Moore. Reggie. Reginald Moore. That's because he spent years pushing the city of Sugarland to acknowledge its not-so-sweet origins. Near the turn of the century, Sugarland was home to the largest hubs for convict leasing in Texas. The practice of leasing convicts for labor was adopted across the South in the decades following the Civil War, 
Reggie would show up at city council, school board, and county commissioners' meetings to explain how black male prisoners were most often lent out to sugar farmers and forced to do the grueling work of harvesting sugar cane. Convict leasing solved two major issues facing white landowners at the time. First, it provided a cheap workforce to replace the slaves they'd lost. And second, it created an environment where they could keep treating black people as second-class citizens. Reggie believed the graves found at the school construction site belonged to those black prisoners who worked and died on local sugar plantations. And he'd been saying the same for years, long before their bodies were actually found. Every time he spoke publicly, Reggie wore this one t-shirt his wife bought him years ago on a trip to Atlanta. It's black with a portrait of Martin Luther King Jr. stenciled on the front in gold. Reggie followed in MLK's footsteps. I have a dream that one day, these free men of neglected and exploited souls would be recognized for their hard works and contributions for Sugarland in constructing this great state of Texas in the Reconstruction era. And his message, like his shirt, was always the same. This city and this state were built on the backs of exploited Black men. And for that, they deserve our apologies, our recognition, and our respect. For Naomi and I, this story hits close to home. I was born and raised in Houston. I went to Texas public schools and graduated from the University of Texas. I've written for newspapers and magazines across the state. Actually, I've never lived anywhere else. But before these 95 bodies were found, I'd never heard of convict leasing. At first, I thought maybe that was because I was a white girl who grew up in a mostly white part of town. But... The more we got into this, I heard the same from all kinds of different people. It's a pretty glaring omission from our history books. It definitely is. I grew up sort of in the shadows of Sugarland, next door in Missouri City. Sugarland was whiter. It had nicer homes, better schools, the mall, better football stadiums. Missouri City felt like the lesser place to live and learn. When I grew up, I wanted to understand how kids on the other side of town understood people like me, kids from Missouri City, Black people. So at 28 years old, I started doing ethnographic fieldwork at a public high school there. For a year, I went to three different U.S. history classes and talked to 15-year-olds about what they were learning about race. I discovered that Sugarland has needed to have a race conversation for a long time. I've been talking about this place and how Blackness, Black people, and Black history have been ignored for years. So when Brittany approached me about doing this podcast, I was game. So we started where anyone researching convict leasing in Sugarland would start, with Reginald Moore. We'll move to item one, uh, public comment. Uh, those citizens desiring to speak the public comment have signed up, and I'd like to call you up. In the summer of 2013, the city of Sugarland was looking to invest in some new parks projects. Please introduce yourself, state your address for the record, and then you'll be given Uh, Three minutes for public comment. There were a few proposals on the table. A network of hike and bike trails, a festival site, and a sports park. Definitely not on the list. A memorial to convict leasing. But that didn't stop Reggie from showing up to ask for one. We'll move to the next speaker, Mr. Reginald Moore. Mr. Reginald Moore is speaking on our Agenda 4A resolution. Mr. Moore? Uh, Yes, my name is Reginald Moore. I'm a historian and preservationist. And I'm a former correctional officer with the Jester Units. His request might sound a little rambling, but that's just how he talked. And he opened with a pretty big ask. 
part of the money out of the blind election, I would like for him to build a museum in honor of the convict lease system. He also wanted the city to start proactively searching for unmarked convict graves. So because there wasn't any archaeological studies, the concerns of where these people buried, those homeowners like to know, you know, where these bodies are, are they living on grave sites? So I'm petitioning the city for archaeological studies on this particular property. Remember, this was five years before the graves were discovered, but Reggie just knew their bodies were out there. I've been petitioning this for years, same 12, 13 years, so I'd like to see this book done while we had a bond here and included in that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Moore. Thank you for being here tonight. As Reggie said, this meeting wasn't the first time he'd made this kind of request. The way he comes on, because he comes on so strong, gives or gave, I think, some people in their mind sort of permission to dismiss him. This is Jay Jenkins, a white attorney originally from Iowa who also happens to be one of Reggie's closest friends and fiercest defenders. It was almost like people... They felt like they were dealing with a telemarketer or something that they could just dismiss because he's going to come back the next time and the next time and say the same thing. And so there's no point in really addressing it. We've learned that persistence was Reggie's calling card, and it wasn't limited to his activism. We officially met in 1998. We went to the same church, and we ended up in the same Sunday school class. This is Reggie's wife, Marilyn Moore. She's a whole head shorter than him and has the kindest eyes behind her cat eye frames. Even then, he was very passionate and he was, it seemed like he was in distress. <laughs> so uh, I just asked the class to pray for him. I spoke with Marilyn on a stormy afternoon last summer. Her house is on the very edge of Harris County, just a mile or two north of Sugarland. And I remember one Sunday, I came in late, and I had to sit next to him. And I could see him looking at me from head to toe, and it just got on my nerves. You know, why is he looking at me? Well, just stop looking at me. <laughs> and I don't know the timeline, how much later it was that he called me. See Persistence. He got my number from somebody in the class and called me and, and left a message on my answering machine and said that, well, I wasn't at Sunday school on Sunday, so I was just checking to see what happened. I was saying, yeah, right. So I finally called him back and uh, we talked for a long time. But she still wasn't sold on the idea when he asked her out. He asked me about going out on Friday. I said, well, usually my kids and I, that's pizza night for us. I said, well, I have to see if I can get someone to stay with my kids. That was my, I thought I was going to get out of it. Right, you're like, oh, no, <laughs> yeah. can't find anybody. Right. I didn't look. But Reggie kept calling, and his persistence paid off. Six months later, they were married. Back then, Reggie was working as a longshoreman, loading and unloading ships coming into the Houston Ship Channel. It was a job he'd had since he was 18. That is, except for a short stint in the 80s when he was laid off during an economic slump. That's when he got a job as a guard at a men's prison in Fort Bend County. And it was there that he first started digging into the history of convict leasing in the area. 85 through 88, I think. Working in there and seeing how they were treated and those kind of things, it reminded him of slavery. When the economy rebounded, Reggie went back to his longshoreman job. But he kept thinking about convict leasing. 
better understand Reggie's quest, you need to know a little more about this place and its history. Today, Sugarland is one of many desirable suburbs on the outskirts of Houston. But in the early 1800s, it was home to the hottest real estate in Texas. When the father of Texas himself, Stephen F. Austin, was doling out land to the state's earliest non-native settlers, he chose this area for his homestead. The Brazos River runs right through the city and south all the way to Galveston Bay. That meant the area had fertile soil, plenty of fresh water, and easy access to a major port. In this way, Sugarland is really proud of its heritage. There's First Colony Mall, a neighborhood called New Territory, Settlers Way Park, and neighborhoods and streets named Something Plantation or Colonial Something. But the identity this city embraces more than anything is right in the name, Sugarland. Sugarland, the city that sugar built. Early white settlers found the land was great for cultivating sugarcane and spent decades growing and processing raw sugar, first relying on slaves and later convict labor. In the first half of the 1900s, basically everyone who lived in Sugarland worked for Sugarland Industries or its sister company, Imperial Sugar. Imperial Pure Cane Uniform Quality Sugar outsells all others in the Southwest. Ladies, whenever you buy sugar, please remember this refrain. Imperial Sugar is 100% cane pure cane. Imperial Pure Cane Uniform Quality Sugar. Yes, indeed. I can't tell you how long that song has been stuck in my head. Schools in the area used to tour the Imperial Sugar Refinery. My mom was a teacher, and one of my most vivid memories was tagging along with her in her third grade class on a field trip there. I was probably 11. We climbed like 90 sets of stairs to get to the top. I remember being so tired and sore because I was recovering from a broken leg at the time. I can vaguely picture big vats of sugar, and the tour was mainly about processing it. But I don't remember hearing anything about the people who made it all happen, especially before the refinery was industrialized. Yeah, growing up, I honestly didn't know there were other brands of sugar. We only ever had Imperial at home. It's got that royal blue crown logo on every package with since 1843 above it. It was here in 1843 that the first cane sugar mill in Texas was built. And thus, more than a century ago, cane sugar became the cornerstone for one of Texas' great industries, providing one of the world's vital products, pure cane sugar. That was the story we grew up hearing. It was a family-run sugar mill that blossomed into a thriving company town. But the middle part of that story always seems to get left out. It's the part that made the company town possible, that helped infuse millions of dollars into the Texas economy when it needed it most. That's the part Reggie dug into. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Shortly after he and Marilyn got married, Reggie retired. 
he had real bad arthritis, so he was able to retire based on his disability. And he became a full-time activist. I asked Marilyn, did he ever take any time to just chill? He was not a chill type of person. <laughs> he liked to have fun and stuff like that, but then he had this extremely serious side, especially when he really got involved full-time and convict leasing and looking at prison reform and that kind of thing. A lot of people, myself included, wondered why Reggie stayed so fixated for so long on something that happened over a hundred years ago. But the more I learned about convict leasing, the more I realized just how much of our state and nation's history is about race, racism, and anti-blackness. It formed this pattern that I can't unsee. Yeah, and convict leasing isn't the only link in the chain connecting slavery to modern-day structural racism, but it's a really big one. On a purely logistical level, convict leasing played a major role in recuperating Texas after the Civil War. Leased convicts were forced to build railroads, mine iron, even quarry the granite and limestone used to build the Texas state capital. But convict leasing wasn't just economically beneficial. It was a highly effective form of social control. The white ruling class used convict leasing to maintain the power imbalance in the South. They realized they didn't need to arrest every Black man to keep the entire population of African-Americans in line. That's the whole idea. You scare a bunch of people into behaving a certain way, whatever that is, by creating terrible penalties for some small group of people who engage in the thing you don't want other people to do. This is Douglas Blackman, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Slavery by Another Name. It explores the failure of Reconstruction, Black codes, and convict leasing in the Deep South. During this era, prisoners from all demographics were leased by the Texas penitentiary. But Black men were particularly in demand on farms in places like Sugarland. It was an economic need that was related to making it really clear to the millions of other Black people that they needed to go along with these terrible arrangements that the white landowners were demanding of them, that they needed to agree to an ongoing subsistence life rather than have something as terrible as ending up at Sugarland uh, in chains or in a coal mine in Alabama. You know, well, that's so much worse. I'll go along with this terrible situation that I'm already in. I'll go another generation or two in this. So it's a form of social control, just like lynching was a form of social control and all these other things. For African-Americans in the post-Civil War South, freedom wasn't necessarily expected or protected, and convict leasing showed how easily it could be revoked at any time. That's all a part of the story of how this instinctive American sense that the world is better and more stable if Black people, and Black men specifically, are significantly under the control of the state. Just after Reggie retired, the state of Texas began selling off large sections of prison land in Fort Bend County, including the plot containing the 95 bodies we now refer to as the Sugarland 95. In 2003, over 2,000 acres were sold to a developer to build Telfair, a brand new master plan community, which Reggie mentioned at basically every public meeting he attended. Reggie worried that the development would cover up the land's history as a plantation worked by leased convicts. Because the state is selling all these private plantations that were part of the prison system, even plantations that became prisons. So he got to work, tracking down historical surveys, contacting regulators, and taking meetings with city officials. Uh, I'm here again to speak about the convict lease system. 
He spent years asking the city, the county, the state, even the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to search the land for convict graves. And we've been asking, pleading, and crying 15 years to get some kill out here to do some ground penetration radar on this site. Nobody wanted to touch it. Reggie's activism honestly became even more impressive to us when his wife Marilyn mentioned he managed to do it all with very little technology. Never use a computer. Never use a cell phone. Ever? He had other people doing things, including me, for him on the computer. He did everything on the house phone. He would go to the library. He would go to the historical commission. He would go where Sugar Land, wherever, to find information. People were willing to help him. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if they saw his passion for it or wanted him to just go away. I know I wouldn't want to have to deal with him when he was in hot pursuit. That seems universally true. His persistence wore on a lot of people, and his warnings and requests were often dismissed. If you don't put the museum up, it's more of the rear station, we'll put it up ourselves. Your time is up. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. But despite all the years of brush-offs and rejections, Reggie's work eventually paid off. So remember the new school we visited? In October 2017, the day after contractors showed up to work there, Reggie was there too. He told them that they were attempting to build on an African-American gravesite, Despite having no concrete proof of that at the time. Remember, the first bones weren't discovered until five months later in February 2018. Reggie also called the state agency in charge of safeguarding historical sites, the Texas Historical Commission. At first, the Fort Bend Independent School District was undeterred. In an email, the district's chief operations officer said, quote, We feel that we have done our due diligence, and work on the site continues. But the Historical Commission disagreed. They sent a letter to the district the next day, recommending they hire a professional archaeologist to monitor construction. Reggie kept making calls, and within a week, the district had hired a team of archaeologists to monitor and survey the site. And if you're wondering if the district was happy about being painted into a corner like that, listener, they were not. Not at all. (laughs) Original estimates showed the monitoring work would cost the district about $45,000, and it ended up being much, much more. So they already weren't thrilled about the extra cost. But then Reggie went and really pissed them off. One week after they hired the archaeologists, some Fort Bend ISD board members were at a local middle school when Reggie approached them. Dave Rosenthal served on the district's board of trustees from 2012 to 2022. According to him, that day, Reggie, quote, hijacked the conversation with his concerns. But that wasn't what set them off. We should add that Dave Rosenthal didn't respond to our interview request for this series. We're quoting from emails he wrote at the time. Actually, you be Rosenthal and read what he said about Reggie. Okay, I'm Dave Rosenthal. Grail and I genuinely engaged him, took an interest in his story, and even proposed some innovative ideas related to his cause. And all of that seems to be true. Here's part of a message Reggie left for his friend, Jay Jenkins, a few days later. I was able to talk with their board uh, this past Monday, and I had their, their attention and got their attention. And they were looking to do something with me, and they, they was concerned about it. They felt the plea. But then... When they got up to do the, the national anthem and the Pledge of the Legion, I, I turned my back to the flag because of what happened at Article 13 and what happened with uh, 
with Texas implementing that, the cause and effect up until this day. They changed their mind about wanting to deal with me. He's talking about the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which states that, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. That single caveat ushered in the era of convict leasing. Rosenthal, the board member, was so upset by Reggie's protest that he threatened to hold the archaeological survey hostage until Reggie apologized. Here be Rosenthal again. Okay, I'm Rosenthal. After witnessing the rude behavior of Mr. Reginald Moore on Monday evening at Quail Valley Middle School, I do not believe the district should have anything to do with this man. I understand his animosity due to his belief that some dark history has possibly been ignored, but don't drag our school, its staff, and worse, our students into this. I am considering writing a resolution asking the district to cease the archaeological study until Mr. Moore publicly apologizes to all parties individually and to the district for his actions. Reggie said the board members misunderstood the target of his protest. He said he turned his back on the flag, not the kids. So, need a little help, man. Need a little influence uh, to maybe let them know what we're all about and uh, see what could be done with that. If you could, uh, need you to stand with me on this, so if you can give them a call, I'm asking them to go back and look at their footage uh, that they took and see that I did not turn my back to the kids. So, but right where I'm at now, it's at a, it's at a crucial point whether or not they want to make us a part of it. But if not, then I guess I have to go back to ground zero. You know, so here I am again. He sounds so dejected. I know, but luckily, Charles Dupree, who was superintendent of Fort Ben ISD at the time, managed to talk Rosenthal off this particular ledge. He was like, listen, the Historical Commission basically said we had to hire the archaeologist. But even if they hadn't, it's a good PR move for us to be proactive. Quick reminder, all of this drama happened during the first month of construction on the new school. They hadn't even found a single grave yet. This was still October 2017, and the archaeologist had just arrived to monitor construction. Rain Clark told us about it the first time we spoke on the phone. We were actually monitoring trenching and placement of utilities and drilling piers for the foundations and everything and saw nothing of of much consequence um, until that day in February. Rain's team from Goshawk Environmental Consulting monitored construction of the school for three months and dug trenches to search for any remains or culturally significant historic artifacts. And during that time, they found none. So they finished up their work in January and began writing up their report for the Texas Historical Commission. Then, one month later, the first bones were found. When some of the workers were backfilling a trench, they saw some bone fragments. And they'd been seeing, you know, agricultural remains and things like cow bones and horse bones and sheep and pig and all that. They'd been seeing that the whole time. But there was something a little different about these bones. I'm convinced Reggie had spies all over the city because he always seemed to know things before they were made public. And the discovery of the first remains was no different. He left this voicemail for Jay. Hey, Jay, this is Reg. Give me a call, man. Give me a call back, uh soon as you can. Uh, I got some good news today. Uh, I'm hearing uh, from two different sources that they've, they've, they've uh, possibly found a grave out there and the archaeologists are back out there today. So that's a major plus, uh, you know, in trying to, you know, get everything authenticated and 
moving forward with the museum and the memorial and all. So man, that is, that's awesome now. He was hopeful and happy. He thought finally people would have to listen to what he'd been saying all along. They'd have to acknowledge how these black men were exploited. They'd have to face the truth, make amends, pay reparations. Finally, things would be different. But he was wrong. Next time on Sugarland. They came back and they said, these are human remains. And so it was kind of very much, okay, it's, this is real. Hey, Jay, Reg, man, give me a call back, man. They found 20-some bodies out there at that cemetery. The Texas Historical Commission wants the public to contact them if they think they might be descendants of those discovered at this unmarked cemetery. The attorney said, district cannot maintain a cemetery. So what are your options at that point? They were more concerned with getting Reggie to sign off on letting them move the bodies and continue construction than they were about actually paying these people any respect. We have an opportunity to put a, a name to these individuals. This is a completely unique situation, and to not do DNA analysis, it would be a travesty. Archival audio in this episode, courtesy of the Reginald Moore Sugarland Convict Leasing System Collection at the Woodson Research Center at Rice University. Sugarland is a production of the Texas Newsroom and was completed with the support of a grant from Columbia University's Ira A. Littman Center for Journalism and Civil and Human Rights with funding provided by Arnold Ventures and a grant from the Convict Leasing and Labor Project. Sugarland is written and reported by Brittany Martin and Naomi Reed. Our editor is Rachel Ozier Lindley. Engineering and sound design by Jacob Rosati. Fact-checking by Billy Brennan. Audio editing by Bennett Smith. Music by Jerron Marshall. Recording engineering by Jake Perlman. Production help from Rafa Fariha. The Texas Newsroom is a public radio journalism collaboration that includes NPR, KERA in North Texas, Houston Public Media, KUT in Austin, Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, and other stations across the state. Corey McLagan is the statewide managing editor. The Texas Newsroom received support for Sugarland from Frontline's local journalism initiative, which is funded by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Visit sugarlandpodcast.com to learn more about everything we discuss in this series. That was episode one of Sugarland. You should get all eight episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And I am joined again by the co-host and executive producer, Brittany Martin. And Brittany, where is the story going from here? What what should people be looking out for? I think it just gets better and better um, after episode one. So we tell the story of Reginald Moore's journey um, into activism and through the Sugarland 95 um, fight, really, mm-hmm. over what to do with their remains. So... We ended the first episode, Reginald Moore was feeling really hopeful and vindicated in some way, Um, but he quickly found that not everybody agreed with his view of where things should go from there. Um, And there were a lot of competing interests, um, and you sort of hear how it plays out, but we go from how the bodies were handled after that to how they've been handled since uh, they were reburied. And how this history 
has brought us up until today and still has a huge impact on Texas. How did, when we started our conversation, you were pointing out you can't unsee the history of race once you started seeing it in Texas. Um, Having now reported this, you know, eight episodes of this, um, where does that leave you? Where, where you, you hadn't heard this history before. How, how has this changed you having done eight episodes of this? I would say, I don't know. I just feel like my eyes are so much wider open. Not that I wasn't, you know, sympathetic or aware of current racial inequality in Texas. I feel that I was, but now I can really see so much more clearly how we got here. Mm. And I feel this compulsion, honestly, to tell so many more people because I feel like if they knew, they would have more grace towards people of other races. You know, like if people just knew this history, they wouldn't have these racist inclinations. Mm. Uh, That's sort of the perspective that I tend to fall back on is how would my family, who's, you know, very conservative and has been in Texas for generations and generations, how would they hear it and how would they respond to it? And so that's sort of how I approach everything. (laughs) And have you found that when you introduce new information with your conservative family, then on any number of things, but particularly on stuff involving race, um, that it does change them in some way? Yeah, I think so. When I approach things from a more human and narrative perspective, something that they can really relate to and see the humanity in, um, rather than, you know, just they're watching Fox News or whatever Mm -hmm. and everybody's yelling at them. um, When you approach it as like a story, then, you know, they're human like everybody else. And they very much can come around and see how we got here and sympathize with it more. Because the sto- the power of story catches people's attention no matter what. I think so. And like you start to realize it's not just an issue. It's not just inequality as a concept. It's real situations that very real people faced. And as soon as you know the, that person's name and you hear their story... Yeah, they can start to see them as people rather than a concept. So have you shared any of your reporting on Sugarland and uh, and convict leasing with them? A little bit. I've talked to my dad about it, um, and he's so interested in just the fact that this happened and he wasn't really aware of it. Um, the fact that slavery was essentially replaced by this new system of convict leasing in Texas and how it went on for so much longer than we realized. He seems interested so far. Because yeah. that's see, it's really striking to me because of the fact that um, my when I'm feeling dark, <laughs> um, my understanding of the world is um, people don't know the history because they don't want to know it. And um, that when presented with this history that we don't know, um, that people repel it and say, that's a lie, that I don't trust it. And that it feels like certainly in recent years, as we've had these history wars, people are increasingly trained to say, no, that's not real. You're telling me this new history. If I've not heard it before, it must not be real. Yeah. And you're telling me you have a lived experience that's different than that. Yeah, I would say that like, when you're not thinking about the very angry person who's showing up at a school board meeting with 
a sign and, you know, screaming about changing curriculum, when you're thinking about real people that you know and love um, who maybe just don't know something, there is a way, I think, to just talk to them like a person you know and love and say, hey, here's something that happened. You may not know about it, but here's some more information. And I mean, yeah, so far I feel like it's possible to get through. I think another thing is rather than just sort of saying, no, that's not true, I think people really struggle to like reconcile the negative history with the thing they know. Right. And that's sort of what makes people put their walls up. But you don't have to necessarily hate Sugarland just because this history happened here. Right. You can still love the place you live and understand how it became a city. There's two things and you don't have to say it's evil to appreciate the history and right. you don't have to say it's great and deny the history. You can you can you have know, both. Yeah. And you can add the history of these 95 humans to that to the to the history you knew. They can they can exist alongside it too. Yeah, it right. makes it more rich, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you for that dose of optimism and thank you uh, for this reporting, Brittany. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 